1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
2: I make the case in my books that ancient civilizations were, were more advanced, uh, that they had electricity. They had even special sciences where they could, I, I believe, levitate these giant blocks. They had uh, airships, Vamanas, much like today.
0: Reduce stress and enhance your immune system. ESS-60 from C60EVO. C60 is the carbon-60 molecule known to deliver more than 172 times the power of vitamin C, 172 times. ESS-60 is the purest form of C60, a known antiviral, antibacterial, and anti-inflammatory remedy that works. ESS-60 neutralizes free radicals from cell metabolization and external toxins to help minimize inflammation and maximize detoxification. Further, people report better sleep, more energy, and renewed mental clarity when they take our ESS-60 organic oil. To order your Miracle Molecule ESS-60, click on the C60 Evo link in the episode notes for this podcast, or go to c60evo.com slash richard hyphen c60evo.com slash richard hyphen Buy now and save 10% by using the coupon code EVRS at checkout. Again, use the coupon code EVRS at checkout.
1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites.
3: You know him from ancient astronauts, of course. David Hatcher Childress, who's kind of a real-life Indiana Jones to the many fans of his books. He's a captivating speaker, the author of, or co-author of over 20 books. He's traveled the world several times over, and he's here to tell us about Bolivia and Peru and ancient technology and elongated ancient skulls and what they may have had to do with the Anunnaki and on and on and on. Always a pleasure to have this gentleman on the program. David Hatcher Childress, how are you?
2: Hey, good. It's good to be on your show, Richard. David, it seems
3: like whenever I'm uh, in contact with you to get you on the show, you're either going to or coming from Peru and Bolivia. What is it about that area that attracts you so?
2: Well, I love to travel all over the world, and uh, everywhere from remote islands in the Pacific or Indonesia or other places, and, and, of course, South America. I was just recently in at Easter Island too and that's the logo of our company the Easter Island head. Um, there there was a flight from Peru to Easter Island for a while. It, it stopped that now but I was I got on one of the last flights and and did that. I love going to to South America and in Peru uh, and Bolivia especially It's really the land of adventure. Uh, With me, we've got a a magazine that's an adventure travel, archaeology magazine called uh, World Explorer and and a club that goes along with that called the World Explorers Club. We're all about Indiana Jones kind of adventure, lost cities in the jungle, lost pyramids, ancient treasure sunken cities, uh, Atlantis, all that kind of stuff. And let me tell you, Peru and and Bolivia is is just the land of adventure for that kind of stuff. I i never get tired of going down there, and and I do go down there about once a year or so. Uh, usually flying to Lima, and then going up to Cusco. From there, uh, going to Lake Titicaca. Lake Titicaca is the highest navigable lake uh, in the world. It's it's a, it's a huge lake and, and deep. Uh, approximately half of it's in Bolivia. The other half's in, in Peru. And all around that lake are all kinds of weird stuff. Giant, strange, uh, megalithic towers and other ruins like Pumapunku and, and Tiwanaku. And then there's, uh, all this strange phenomenon that happens around the lake, including, uh, a lot of UFO sightings, including UFOs coming in and out of the lake and uh, even there's stories of some weird sunken city there and and I write about all that in in my new book um Ancient technology in, in Peru and Bolivia. Have you ever been to Peru, Richard?
3: No, I, I would love to go. I mean, I've, se- I've seen so many documentaries over the years on uh, on uh, you know the different civilizations that came out of there, the Incas and so forth. And I I, uh, I have a strange attraction to uh, something's pulling me there. I just haven't been able to get on a plane and get there and raise the funds necessary. But you you mentioned Cusco, and I know that one of the things that you talk about in in uh, your new book, Ancient Technology in Peru and Bolivia. Uh, and, and who knows? You know, UFOs may enter into this conversation at some point. But you talk about the Inca walls sort of in quotations because the this interesting um, uh, structure that, uh, that that you write about may actually predate the Incas. But but first of all, tell us what the these Inca walls are, what they look like.
2: Right, in particularly around Cusco and uh, the. Gigantic, uh, fortress that's above Cusco, uh, which is called Saxo-Waman, Uh, other sites around there like, oh, Yantitambo and, 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 Machu Picchu, uh, you have what are, what are known as Cyclopean walls. And those are, uh, granite or sometimes limestone or sandstone walls, uh, basalt too sometimes, where these Huge blocks weighing five tons, ten tons, twenty tons, fifty tons, and a hundred tons are perfectly cut and fitted. Often in a, a jigsaw pattern, they're they're locked together in these oddball patterns. Each block is is unique. The blocks themselves are perfectly fitted you you can't even get a, a razor blade or a, or a piece of paper you know between these blocks are just so perfectly fitted together they're they're gigantically huge as well it's amazing sight when you see it and, and tourists are are blown away machu picchu itself is this secret city on top of a mountain it too has uh, very fine walls Put together in these jigsaw patterns, uh, also huge blocks of granite and stuff. It's such in such a spectacular setting that it's really uh, uh, the top tourist destination in South America, and, and for good reason. But the whole what's I think uh, the big problem, particularly in Peru and and Bolivia, is. Is how old they think these walls are, and just like the history of, of Canada and, and the United States is is kind of screwed up, where supposedly uh, you know a few Vikings got to Labrador or something, and. And then all the American Indians walked across the Bering Straits and populated North and South America and, and suddenly Columbus showed up in 1492 and, and it's kind of like the history and, and there's no other seafarers or people crossing the ocean, uh, even though Romans and Egyptians and Chinese and, and of Spanish and the Irish and all these people had actually pretty big boats and were perfectly capable of crossing the Atlantic and none of them ever came here. And you have a similar thing in, in Peru where suddenly, you know, this this continent is completely isolated. Nobody ever got there. People can't just get into a boat and go somewhere. And that's kind of one of uh, history's conspiracies, in a sense, is that is that uh, oceans are barriers, not highways. And what we're taught in, in school today, which is, in my mind, unscientific, is that, yeah, people can't just get in a boat and, and go somewhere. Uh, no, they, they have to walk everywhere to where they're going. Thousands of miles of hostile tribes. So in South America particularly, it's kind of messed up, where you have these giant megalithic ruins, but they're ascribed to the Incas, who were a very uh late civilization in South America. In fact, they existed only like 200 uh, to 300 years before the Spanish got there. So when you see these giant buildings in in around Cusco, at Sacsayhuamán, or Tambo, it's particularly impressive in my mind. They're saying uh, the mainstream archaeologists are saying, "Yeah, these buildings are only 200 years old, and Machu Picchu too. Uh, well, or 200 years before the Spanish. Uh, now they're about 500 years old. But um, but it, yeah, it doesn't really make sense. And you see these giant buildings, and but that suddenly they were just put up in a very short time too, allegedly." by the Incas, and, it, and the Incas allegedly uh, didn't know the wheel, they had no knowledge of writing. Uh, their technology was primitive, they didn't have iron tools and things like that, uh, certainly they didn't have power saws, uh, uh, giant cranes to, to lift hundred ton blocks of granite and things like that. And yet these are all the things that you find there in South America, and it's baffling. And it, I mean, it really doesn't make sense, and trying to make sense of it all is, is what I do in, in my lost cities and ancient technology books.
3: When you look at, the, for example, the stairs leading up that were also precisely carved out of these solid pieces of granite, I guess, when you look at the weathering on the stairs... Which obviously took place after the cutting took place. I mean, the weathering alone would tend to, to show you that these things are probably on the order of a thousand years, rather than you know five or six hundred years.
2: Well, right, and and those stairs, like that you're talking about, uh, in various places, and, and say at Tiwanaku, where we can really see them. Yeah, they are heavily weathered, and and yeah, a lot of people for a long time must have been walking up and down on these stairs, and that's one of the other enigmas, really, too, is that you have sites uh, mainly in bolivia which are similar and and in some ways identical to the same inca supposed inca ruins in peru but they know that they're not built by the incas and that they are pre-inca and but just exactly how old they are is the big question and basically in my book i'm saying that that those ruins at at, say tiwanaku pumapunku They're from around 3000 BC, really. And there's even, um, cuneiform Sumerian writing, uh, that's been found there, which, which is another thing. That's, that's a giant monkey wrench into the, the history there. In fact, yeah, that, that just can't be there. In fact, um, today there's, it's actually in the, the gold museum in, in La Paz. It's called the Fuente Magnable. And it has two forms of Sumerian writing on it. One is cuneiform, and the other is uh, uh, Sumerian hieroglyphics. The, the Sumerians had, had several writing forms, and it's it's today in the museum, you know, the, basically the National Museum in La Paz. But it can't be there. And mainstream archaeologists, uh, particularly the United States, I mean, they would say, you know, this this just can't be there. This this bowl. Can't exist. There can't have been Sumerians in South America 5,000 years ago. This What's... is, this is, you know, that's not, that's not history. That's not our history. Yet yeah, it's in that museum. And in fact, yeah, you know, Bolivia's kind of a renegade nation of a sort. And I, which I think is a good thing. And um, I mean, they want to do their own thing. They, they don't bow to pressure that much from the United States. But I can honestly tell you that if that bowl, that Sumerian bowl, had probably been found in Peru, it wouldn't be on display in a museum. I mean, they would cover it up. It's. Yeah, people are. Yeah, it's too controversial, and it, and it totally flips the mainstream history on its head. I mean, it, it's, it's a giant, you know, nuclear bomb to all their theories. I mean, there just can't have been that. And what it's really indicating is that ancient Sumerians probably, at, you know, at some point, came to South America, came to Lake Titicaca and Cuzco. Built all this stuff, and I mean, some of it was maybe already there, you, there's lots of theories about Atlantis and whatnot in, in South America, and, and those are pretty good theories, in effect. The megalithic building, that how far it goes back to, you know, even 10,000 years. But this is the kind of history that, that's, yeah creates a big cover up. All they can do right now is ignore it, which they do. But it, it really shows you how, uh... there are cover-ups in history and people are constantly asking me about smithsonian institution cover-ups uh... that you know why why would say universities or smithsonian or other people cover-up certain archaeological finds and and i think that's a good question but there really, it really does go on, and, and we can go into this why they would do it.
3: Uh, okay, so the Sumerians suddenly arrive in Bolivia of all places uh, from uh, you know Mesopotamia or modern day Iraq. Uh, so, what would they have been looking for? Why do you think? Do you, I mean, do you speculate? Can you speculate on why they would have come to
2: Bolivia? Yeah, sure, and I and I do in my book. I I pretty much spell it out and and decipher what. Is going on there as is, is, is best that I could figure out, and in fact, I, one of the other things that you see around Lake Titicaca and in and, and the Cusco area, which is a little bit north of, of Lake Titicaca, but but not very far, you have these weird towers, and they're megalithic too, with cyclopean uh, construction with granite blocks and things like that. They often have a open tower, open. Uh, Tops—they're—they're—they're uh, they're, they're kind of strange in the sense that they often kind of taper in or or out, they're, rather than being perfectly straight up and down. At At Cusco, there were also some weird towers like this. They were des- destroyed by the Spanish. But around Lake Titicaca, and and they're more on the west side of the lake, and and actually in Peru, uh, and but Tiwanacos along the south side of the lake, and and it's in Bolivia but these weird towers are are on top of these strange uh mesas and they're flat-topped mesas um, uh, similar to like mesas that would be in in Arizona or new Mexico or Utah or something and, and uh but as you climb up to these mesas uh it's, there are these oddball towers, and and they're very well made, uh, just like the the giant walls and stuff in Cuzco or at Tiwanaku, And they can't figure out what they're doing there, and they're in isolated weird places. I mean, they're not near some towns and stuff, and it's it's kind of desolate there. Although there are forests, you know, fairly nearby. What mainstream archaeologists have said is that well, they're barrier burial towers, and. Uh, the local people there just, I mean, they, they, they themselves live in these kind of crummy mud hut houses. But they decided to build these really excellent, finely cut granite towers and put them, you know, uh, on top of these mesas. You know, so that they could, you know, put some dead bodies in there for a while, and and then they would probably be like naturally mummified or something. And it it does seem that the local people did use these towers to inter the dead from time to time, but it's it doesn't seem that that's what the, the original purpose of these towers were, and so that became a mystery. And it was and it was clear that the same people who are building these towers. Are the people who, who really built Cuzco, who who built Machu Picchu, all these things, and it's and it's earlier than the Incas, and that's one of the things with megalithic construction in general. Today, oftentimes when we build things, uh, y- you know, even well-built buildings, they're not made they're to last for thousands of years. They're they're made to last for a hundred or two hundred years, and and you know that's a pretty good building uh, if you go to Washington D.C. or Ottawa or something, and look at a really nice capital building or something, and it it may be well constructed and actually made to last for a while. But w- we have really, with our own construction, almost like a, a planned obsolescence that's there, and we fully expect to just tear down these buildings at some point and, and rebuild them. But when you're building with these megalithic structures, like in South America, or it can be in Egypt, uh, all over the world, they're built to last for thousands of years, and they have. Uh, they're giant blocks of stone perfectly fit together. And you have to ask yourself this, too, and I I go into all this in the book, why are people even trying to build like that? I mean, supposedly, they're simple people without, you know... Our tools without big cranes or engineering skills and, 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 and machines like we have today. Yet we wouldn't even try and build like that. But they're, they're trying to do something that seems so incredibly difficult. I mean, it's like they're just trying to do things in the most difficult way possible, including building with 100 ton blocks of granite that they not only have to quarry, move 10 or 20 miles, but then they have to stack them up, perfectly fit them together. It all seems so incredibly tedious. But, you know, I'm maintaining in the book that actually it's done with fairly high technology. They actually have power tools and saws. Uh, which sounds pretty incredible, but this gets into the whole vimanas and and ancient technology, even that the ancients had electricity.
3: Well, here's uh, something that I found fascinating, and and, uh, I know that in, I think in the museum in Cusco, they have a portion of those blocks, and there are these holes bored into this solid granite, and when you shine a flashlight through, it's almost as if the hole has been rifled. It's that sort of smooth and precise. We're not talking about, you know, just a, a crude Chisel. How did those holes.
2: Exactly. No, that's right. That's a good point. Yeah, so you have like these perfectly round holes that are drilled through, say, basalt, which is extremely hard rock. It looks like it's even been melted. I mean, we're we're looking at power tools. What's also on these blocks particularly at Tiwanaku and Pumapunku, but also seen at Tombo and at the Sun Temple in in Cusco, the the Coricancha, that's a mysterious building itself, also very expertly, perfectly made, it was a round building, it held this great treasure, there's a weird tunnel system that goes beneath Cusco and that temple, and, and is well known uh, to Cuscanians, so the Proving government actually blocked it off at one point, but they have these keystone cuts. In other words, these cuts that are made into the blocks, and they're a, a double T, and or they're like an hourglass shape. And one side of the T or the hourglass, uh, there can be circular clamps and things too, is on one giant block. And we're talking again, 20 ton, 100 ton blocks. Uh, which you wouldn't think are going anywhere, but then they're fitted together with these these clamps, and then molten metals are poured into those those the the clamps themselves, the, the key cuts as they're called, and then the metal clamp becomes. Uh, is it hardens in like a double T-shaped or an hourglass shape, and it's on, it's on both of the blocks, and it's there to hold these blocks together. Well, that's a really unusual way of fitting uh, giant blocks together, but we find it all over the world. We find it in Egyptian temples... Uh, we find it, uh, in, in Turkey, we find it in Greece, we even find it in Borobudur in Indonesia, and at Angkor Wat in Cambodia, also the megalithic cities of the Khmer people in Vietnam. You have these exact same kind of keystone cuts, and then these metals, there has to be some bronze or some kind of alloy metal is poured into it. So the whole idea even that Different people from all over the world—I mean, on, on in Asia and in Africa and in South America—that they're building like this with these kind of special keystone cuts, and then the metal clamps poured into it. That these people would independently develop such an unusual form of, of fitting unusual blo- these giant blocks together you know is incredible but again that's what the mainstream archaeologists have to say they they're saying oh yeah you know this is just a temple site yeah the people wanted to drag these giant blocks well they made these keystone cuts and yes they had to pour this liquid metal in but that's part of the the thing and now we'll get back to these towers is that what you've got going here, and this is what mainstream archaeologists don't get, is that yeah, you have basically somewhere you've got to have these mines and metallurgical plants. So, so not just are you going to have gold mines and tin mines and copper mines and uh, and and whatnot. But you then have to process the ore. You have to wash it. You have to have kilns that are going to uh, fire up the, the ore. What's going to, you know, then you're going to have the liquid metals come out, whether it's gold, silver, or copper, tin. You're going to to make bronze and other harder metals. You have to mix them and, and make alloys. And so, so, you know, what we're seeing there, what 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 is obviously going on is that somewhere there had to have been some very sophisticated uh, foundry. Uh, you know, a metallurgical plant thats that's got waters, washing ores, you would have to have furnaces, uh, you know, and then they have the liquid metals that they're pouring into these giant blocks. And then at Tijuana and Puma itself, I mean, there were gigantic buildings there and, and huge pyramids, and these pyramids even had artificial lakes on top of them. It was you know it 's an a engineer.
3: that 's a lot of effort to go to to bury somebody i, I don 't buy that for a moment
2: <laughs> well right i mean that 's the thing and, and they 're missing that point too they 're looking at Tiyanako and pumapunku and and even these towers and stuff. they just see them as these kind of Oddball, you know, ceremonial sites and these, and they're basically saying, yeah, these primitive people wanted a place to meet or something and, and do their sun ceremonies or, or sacrifice some, some llamas and alpacas or something. And so they build all these giant things. But, but yeah, what, but obviously, you know, it's taking amazing engineering, uh, and construction abilities to do this. They had to plan this whole thing out. They're, they're in fact diverting entire rivers to go into special canals, and then they're pumping the water up to these artificial lakes so, uh, so that they can then bring it down and wash wars. So in other words, what these towers are, they're part of the metallurgical plants too. I, I, I just what I, decided and they were probably filled with charcoal they're basically giant kilns you have you have to make charcoal for first first of all and and that's can be also done in a kiln and a and a tower and then once you have the charcoal then you can make the foundries and the furnaces that are going to melt the ores and in fact what is at the famous gate of the sun at tiwanaku is this sun god supposedly Viracocha. And he's he's right there on the main part of this gate, which was this monolithic doorway that it's carved out of one giant piece of granite and they had a bunch of these there. But he's there. He's got a he's got a feathered headdress, just like we picture the American Indian chiefs having his big feathered headdress and stuff. But tears are coming down his, his cheeks, and it's very obvious. And they, you can see that he is crying. Um, and sometimes they call this the tears of the sun. Well, and the way I have managed to code it in my book, really is that these are. This is, this is gold, uh, it's liquid metals. Uh, then the tears of the sun is literally drops of gold or drops of liquid copper and, and other metals which, which they would mix together to create bronze and, and other alloys.
3: America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights
0: If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive, commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com and click on Gain Access to Premium Episodes. Again,
1: Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, Here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Or something like that. I'll ask Richard later. Ancient
3: technology in Peru and Bolivia. David Hatcher Childers is with us. So this smelting operation, or whatever you want to call it. I, the other thing I was, I found interesting when you look at the those those holes again, and that were bored with such precision. Uh, and you look at those all lined up in these strange configurations. It almost looks like I don't know they were running cables or something through there. What do you think those? what What were those for?
2: Well, you know, that, I mean, that's a good point, and uh, there's, particularly at the Sun Temple, uh, the Coricancha in, in Cusco, which is such a strange, strange building, and uh, was totally the center of life in the Inca the Empire, and, it was, and I maintain that that building was already there. I mean, these buildings are virtually indestructible, although the the Spanish would try to turn like like that. They turned it into a church and a monastery, and then they built walls uh, around it. And then later, it was in uh, 1949, they had a big earthquake there, and and some of the Spanish walls fell down, and they could see more of the Spanish, the earlier pre-Spanish walls which they call Inca, but are actually probably pre-Inca. But some of those walls are just so bizarre, and they have all these drill holes in them. They're very, very carefully articulated, where you have these different door jams and things, and you have, um, yeah, these drilled holes and and grooves. And in fact, it looks like, um, particularly this one niche uh, there at the Sun Temple, it looks like some kind of machine or something was uh, fit into this special kind of... Niche. It has holes for cables and things to go through it. Um, just ex- and in fact, I've had electrical engineers that I've been with telling me that yeah, this this is looks exactly like uh, you know a, a sort of a. Uh, a case for some kind of machine or electrical device that would have had all kinds of cables running into it. And, of course, they're all gone. And that's part of the thing with that the Tiwanaku and, and all the stuff that you see, particularly in South America and all over the world, is that the metals are gone. Any any piece of metal or cable, even these uh, keystone clamps, the the metals that are poured in, they're all basically gone, and and it's it's what people have you know often said, and it's a good criterion. And you know, I, I make a case in my books that ancient civilizations were were more advanced; uh, that they had electricity, they they had even special sciences where they could, I, I believe, levitate to these giant blocks. They had uh, airships, vimanas. Much like today, I mean, uh, I don't think that the ancient world had such a consumer society like we have today, with all kinds of different brands to buy and um, kind of you know all the different choices we have. But they had, they had electricity. Um, they had power saws. They even had some kind of flight. These vimanas, my, my new book that I'm working on now, and. And should be out later this summer. is a book about Vimanas, and in fact, it's just called Vimana, and it's all about these ancient airships and uh, super technology that that was in ancient India and the ancient Indian epics like the Ramayana. And right, right. Mahabharata. And when you read those books, they read like the wildest science fiction. People are flying around in their Vamana airships. They have horrific weapons. They're blasting each other. They're going to other continents and things like that. I mean, it's like some uh, Buck Rogers or, or Flash Gordon movie or something.
3: Well, if you have these huge, like, dirigibles, uh, like these huge Zeppelins, I mean, yeah, that would certainly solve a lot of the mystery as to how the Sumerians end up... Uh, you know, it's one thing just to cross the ocean but then when you arrive in South America and you've got to get you know, up to the top, up to Lake Titicaca and so forth, th- th- that's another huge obstacle. So if they did in fact, uh, move around using the, uh, in zeppelins or dirigibles, you know, problem solved. Uh, I, I want to talk about uh, Sumeria though, f- for a moment, because, uh, m- for many of us, Sumeria came into our sort of a consciousness, uh, via people like Zachariah Sitchin and, and, uh, translating these, these Sumerian cuneiforms and their creation legends about meeting up with the Anunnaki. Maybe we can then now sort of move into uh, the uh, the Anunnaki, the Sumerians, and uh, I know the, the subject of one of your other books, and that is uh, your new books, The Enigma of Cranial Deformation, and how all this sort of fits together. Are you good for that? Yeah. All right. So, let's assume uh, you are correct, uh, and that it was the Sumerians uh, who built these... Structures, these uh, megalithic uh, structures, with such precision that has been attributed by sort of mainstream uh, archaeology to the Incas. It was the Sumerians who who built those. Uh, The the uh, the connection between the Sumerians and the Anunnaki. For those not familiar with that story, can you just give us a bit of that creation legend very quickly as a setup?
2: Well, right. Um, We get the term Anunnaki uh, from the Sumerians, and it's possibly, it seems that that's uh, uh, similar to what's in the Biblical Old Testament, the the Nephilim. And they were supposedly these giants. They have these elongated heads. Uh, There are statues that come out of Sumeria. That show these guys—they have what they call coffee bean eyes, kind of a kind of a weird eyes that are, that are different than what we're normally used to seeing and statues, say like Egyptian statues or something. Um, and they have these elongated weird heads. Um, according to, uh, the Sumerian, uh, mythology and stuff, they were these gods who brought civilization and, uh, different sciences, including metallurgy and, um, you know, medical sciences and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, allegedly, they, they could fly through the air, had airships, uh, they also had boats. And in fact, you know, I mean, that's, that's one of the things too. Uh, See, Easter Island would fit into this too, as well. You know, just trying to wrap your head around what it's like in the ancient world, and, and and particularly them having, in a sense, advanced technologies like, like even airships and stuff like that. But look at us today. I mean, we have, we've got rockets, we've got satellites, we've got all kinds of different, you know, aircraft of, of all kinds of different sort. But yet. Still, most of our cargo and traffic is done by sea and by boat. Um, you know, we we don't airlift everything everywhere, and uh, and most most cargo really does move up and down rivers and and across oceans and on boats, and we we still use boats. So even if the Sumerians had airships. Uh, which I maintain they did, um, you know they would still have boats too, uh and they, they would have had a huge navies and and that 's one of the things I mean ancient people's had that uh, just like today, and in fact it 's often was said. Right up to historical times today, is that well the country with the biggest navy rules the world, and uh, that was you know the British. Uh, that was one of their songs, how you know Britannia ruled the waves, simply because they had the biggest navy. But they weren't wasn't always like that. There was times when Holland had the world's largest navy. There were times when Spain had the world's largest navy. Today it's the United States, I supposedly, and although it'll be China soon with the world's largest navy. So but yeah, so you have the boats and and you're and you need you need landing areas, you need landing spots, you need ports, you need island sort of uh you know Places like Easter Island, where where people can stop and, and get water or something like that. Um, so you're going to have all that. And if the Sumerians were doing all this, and, and I maintain they did, yeah, they're they're literally going all over the world. And and that's part of the thing today is that uh, what you were saying, um, how Sumeria is basically the other side of the Earth from uh, Bolivia and Lake Titicaca. I mean, they're about as far away as they can get and yet it would seem that that was one of their colonies and and what they were looking for just as the spanish were when they got to south america they wanted treasure they wanted metals they wanted mines and and by the way uh, what fueled, uh, the Spanish, um, you know, empire for, for uh, several centuries was this giant mountain of silver in, in, uh, Bolivia known as Potosi. And it's, it's literally a mountain of silver. And it became, at the time, in colonial times, it became Bolivia's most important town. Uh, it's not today, but um, but it was all because there was just so much mineral and metal wealth that was there, and it's right near. I mean, it's a little bit south of of Lake Titicaca, so they were using Lake Titicaca also for for ships. By the way, Sumerian is an unusual language. It's supposedly the only language that has no. Um, has has no uh, sort of familiar other languages. It's it's unique. There are no other languages like Sumerian. Most other languages are somehow related to you know Indo-European or this language or that language, but Sumerian is is unusual that way.
3: There's, There's so much of the Sumerian culture that I mean it, here's a, a civilization that just sprang up while the you know everyone else was just climbing out of the trees or living in mud huts. Sumeria had uh, uh, you know, domesticated uh, uh, livestock and, and, and a- developed sophisticated agriculture. They had libraries and, and and so forth, which has led some to this is you know surmise that they had, as according to their sort of creation legend, uh, communication with this extraterrestrial race, these Anunnaki. Do you do you subscribe to, to, to that theory?
2: Well, I, I'm certainly open to it, and uh, I mean, there's, there's something to that. Uh, the, but now, if these people have electricity, if they have complicated machines uh if if they've got airships, they've got beam weapons, they've got plasma cutters, yeah, they've got high energy devices that melt things. They've got levitation devices that that somehow make some 100-ton block of granite weightless so they can, you know, move it into place. I mean, it's it this is apparently what's going on. I mean, the, the more you look at it and and research it as, as I have, the more convinced I am that this is this is what it was in the ancient world. And even yeah, that people are coming from other planets—what uh, that's all about—you have the interesting idea too. Um, and I knew Zacharias Sitchin and, and talked to him a number of times, read all his books, and I—I I, I liked him. I I did not agree with everything he said, but what's interesting too—and and this was not what he was interested in—but it's it's more the direction that that my research took me. Is that our solar system? Apparently, there's there's a thing that was discovered in the mid 1800s by a a German mathematician named Bode, and he he had this thing called Bode's Law, and Bode's Law was a mathematical logarithm that goes out from the sun, and what he was what he kind of came up with was that as you move out from the sun, out into the solar system, there that According to his law, there should be a planet at certain spots along as you go out. And as you go farther away from the sun, they would actually get, you know, there would be farther space between the planets and all that. And what's interesting is that Bode's law very much fit our solar system, except for one big, uh, difference. And that is that between Mars and Jupiter, there should be a planet. That's what Bode's Law said. and But instead of there being a planet between Mars and Jupiter, there's the asteroid belt.
3: Right, the remnants of a planet, perhaps.
2: That's right. So now you have basically the, the evidence for this story that there was another planet in our solar system, but it blew up. And either the people blew up their own planet, and, uh, and maybe we're those guys uh... But, yeah, there was a time when then our solar system perhaps had three um, planets that were inhabitable as in the way we would think we inhabited bull would be, like like the Earth and Mars and this other planet.
3: Sure, and, but, and our, our mutual friend uh, 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 Joseph Farrell, who writes of course uh, for uh, Adventures Unlimited, is published by Adventures Unlimited, he's written extensively about that in Cosmic Wars. People can check that book out.
2: That's right, those Cosmic this, Wars. And now all these guys do, just so we can get to the the enigma of cranial deformation, these people with these elongated craniums, and they look like extraterrestrials, but we know that some people just made you know, little kids this way by, you know, binding the head and stuff. But people were doing this all over the world, and they were doing this in Samaria, and, and certainly the Anunnaki looked like this. But they have found many, many skulls in, in South America, also in Egypt, also the, in Kurdistan. Uh, even the Chinook Indians in near Seattle and Vancouver, they did this too. So you have these weird cone heads with these strange elongated heads, and but they're all over the world too. So, I mean, that's that's another weird thing. You know, why are people in all these, you know, separate, far from places doing this oddball thing? And the mainstream archaeologists are going to say, oh, they all just invented it themselves, separately, you know, without any contact. Just... Doing this weird thing. And well, how does guess, that make
3: sense? Well, I guess they were either emulating the uh, the Anunnaki, who they would have sort of worshipped like gods, I suppose, or maybe some of these skulls that you've seen in the museum in Cusco. They're all on display there. Uh, these elongated skulls. Uh, I don't know. Perhaps they're they're hybrids or the Anunnaki themselves
2: well sure so you have either people who just naturally look like this with these elongated heads and they're real uh you know um, although some of the museums are taking these off display in fact because they're so unusual uh but in Peru particularly you can see them and uh, but yeah so either they're doing that i mean they and they look normally this way or because they were these gods and the elite, that other people wanted to look like them, so they would do this like head binding that would create an elongated head and and whatever. And some of these guys too, they would be double their cranium capacity, and in theory, yeah, their brains would be larger than a normal human's as well.
3: Just uh, to add, sort of more to further muddy the water, I suppose. There was a book uh, written in the middle of the 19th century. You're probably familiar with that I can't remember the author. It's called Peruvian Antiquities. And there's a sketch in that book that shows a human fetus with a huge elongated skull, which, again, is suggesting that some of them may have been born that way.
2: That's right, yeah. So, And that's the interesting thing. Uh, In our book uh, with Brian Forster, the an enigma of cranial deformation, we have some color photos of a very unusual head, a skull, which has a different fusing of the plates, and it's not a normal, um, you know, uh, you have different plates in your head, and, and when you're a baby, they don't, they haven't fused yet, but as, as you become more, as you grow up, they they do fuse together, but you have these You have certain plates in your head, but these elongated skulls don't have that same plate pattern that that normal humans would have, so they may well be some different species of person or or even possibly extraterrestrials. Well,
3: listen, David, we could go on for hours and would love to, and uh, perhaps we can pick it up at another point down the road and, and talk further about these cranial deformations. I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you, David.
1: Thank you, Richard.